It is really delightful to be with you all this Lord's Day to celebrate our Lord. And would you join me in a word of prayer as we prepare to open His Word and truth to us. Father, we do praise You that You are the everlasting God who from eternity past has been loving one another as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And You would have been perfectly content to continue loving just among the triune oneness of our God. And yet in the overflow of Your love, You created this universe to be a home to be able to create men and women in your image that could understand who you are, that could receive and respond to your love by glorifying you and by reaching out in love to others. So Father, we praise your natural perfections and that you are almighty, that you are all-knowing, that you are unchanging, you are transcendent yet omnipresent, ubiquitous. Father, more than that, we praise your moral perfections, that you are holy, that you are loving, that you are righteous, that you are compassionate, that you are merciful, that you are just, that you are righteous, that you are so condescending in your kindness to us. And Father, we acknowledge our unworthiness, that our lives are self-centered and small, and we trade the greatness that you intend for us for the small dalliances of this world. And we are pleased to feed our flesh and to give in and gratify our lust and to seek the praise and the approval of men rather than our Creator and Redeemer. So we thank You that despite our sinfulness that You sent Your Son to live and to die and to rise, and now He reigns at Your right hand until He returns to set all things right. And that is our great hope. So we are very grateful to be Your children here this morning, singing Your praise and now attending Your Word. And would Your Spirit, who inspired these truths, now open our minds to understand them, our hearts to receive them, our wills to obey them, that we might become more like Christ to better represent you and serve you in our age. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I was out walking the streets this week and uh, saw a father and a son outside doing football drills. And it was hot and it was humid, but the dad was there clocking the son. He must have been a defensive back because he was doing forward sprints and backward pedals and this and that. And I complimented them on their diligence, and he was proud to boast in his son's athletic ability. And he could have been inside watching television, he could have been doing something else, but he was glad to invest in his son to help him develop the skills that would help him succeed in life. Because he thought, if my son's got athletic ability, then I'm going to help develop that, because if he has speed and strength and agility and dexterity, then that's going to help him have a successful life. And other parents are taking their kids to camp and cotillion, to work on their social skills and etiquette, and others are out there teaching them how to hit, pitch, and catch, or to uh, tuck and roll and throw, or to play an instrument and to bow a bow and pluck a string. Because when we see abilities in our children, we want to invest in them to give them the skills they need to succeed in life. That's what parents want. We want our kids to have a good life, which we often define by artistic, athletic, social, or professional success. And Solomon and the other authors of Proverbs, with that same motive of, I want these children to have a good life, a life wisely and well lived. But they know enough to know that the good life doesn't come from having mere worldly success, whether through prosperity or intelligence or academic ability or artistic and athletic accomplishments, that the path to a good life, according to the book of Proverbs, is the virtuous life. It is to help us attain the character of God, which now we know to be the character of Christ, and it's by having a character that we succeed. 
It's not the profile we create on LinkedIn or social media. It's the persons that we really are, the people that we really are, the character that we really have that determines whether we're going to live wisely and well, whether we're going to truly succeed in life. So today we want to look at five foundational virtues that wisdom would beckon us to acquire if we're to live the life that our Lord has for us, namely self-control, righteousness, integrity, humility, and trust in God. Now these aren't exhaustive, but these are five foundational fundamental uh, virtues that we should pursue, acquire, and protect, and foster in others if we're going to live the wise life that God intends for us, the good life that our Heavenly Father wants for us. So let's look at the first of these. Two Proverbs give the negative and the positive side of the virtue of self-control. Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. Proverbs 16.32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. So here we have a similar imagery in this pair of Proverbs of a conquered city. And the first one is a city that has been defeated. And the invaders have come in and they've knocked down the walls and now the enemy is in the midst and they're pillaging and marauding and they're mercilessly attacking a city that is helpless because it's lost its defenses. And this vivid imagery of evil men doing evil deeds among a helpless populace is what Proverbs says it is a person who has no self-control. Someone who's just simply controlled by their appetites. That every time they itch, they scratch. Every time there's an urge, they gratify. Every time there's an impulse, they do. And they're like these sailboats that every gust and puff of wind just bobs them here and there. And there are people who can't control their impulses, their urges, their emotions, their appetites. And Solomon says, how sad it is not to be able to control yourself. It's like being a helpless, defenseless city. And here, it's our own enemies, our own itches and lust and greed and gratifications that if we can't get a handle on that, ruin our lives, destroy our souls, and put us into bondage. The St. Augustine who lived in North Africa, he was born in 354. He shares a birthday with Carrie Hull, November 13th, and he died in 430. He came to Christ at the age of 32, and in his autobiography, The Confessions, which is the first spiritual autobiography we have in Christian literature, or in literature in general, he tells the tale of going as an 18-year-old boy to the city of Carthage, which was the great city in North Africa. And this is his account of going as a country boy to the big city. I came to Carthage where a cauldron of unholy loves was seething and bubbling all around me. My soul was unhealthy and full of sores, itching to be scratched by scraping on sensual pleasures. I polluted the spring of friendship with the filth of passion. I dimmed its luster with the slime of lust. I was bound by the iron chain of my own will, and the enemy held my fast my will. I made for myself a chain, and it bound me tight, for out of my perverse will came lust. And the indulgence of lust ended in habit, and unresisted habit became necessity. And by these links, I forged for myself a hard bondage that held me in slavery. Doesn't that give you chills? I, I lusted because my, my will has fallen. And so I gratified it rather than resisting and exercising self-control. And the more I gave in, the more I indulged, it became a habit. And then the habit became a need and it became an addiction. 
And he says that every time I sinned, I was link by link forging the chains that bound me into slavery and bound him into a bondage that was hard. And this is what sin does to us, is it starts with these impulses that we have, be it lust, be it greed, be it gluttony, and then we begin to indulge, we begin to capitulate. And then after a while, it becomes a habit. We begin to deal, dig ruts for ourselves. And now the water begins to flow down the channels of the paths that we trod. And then pretty soon, they become necessities. And then they become bondage. And then we are now acting out of an addiction. And again, whether to social media or porn, or whether it's to alcohol or drugs, whether it's being a workaholic to make money or whatever the case may be, now we have bound ourselves into an addiction that we can't escape, but we've lost the joy from. Because Satan is happy to give us pleasure at the beginning, like baiting a hook. But once he has us hooked, it gives him no delight for us to experience the delight. And that's what addictions do, don't they? Is after a while, you're doing things that you feel compelled to do, but you're not driving joy from them anymore. And now, no matter how high the cost gets, no matter how much destruction it brings to yourself and others, you can't help yourself because you're like a defenseless city. Now, I remember as a young boy, Dad, it must have been eight or nine, we were in Lubbock visiting my grandparents and I was on the sidewalk and I saw a person walking down the street smoking out of their tracheotomy. So they had smoked themselves into having a, and what's the permanent called, a tracheostomy? Tracheostomy, where they had the permanent metal disc and their smoking had cost them their voice, their lungs, their health, they couldn't breathe out of their mouth, and they couldn't drop the habit, and he was inhaling and exhaling out of his throat. And I thought right then, I'm never smoking a cigarette. I'm never doing that, because that was a terrible bondage to see. Now, Dad had a beautiful secretary, Dorothy, that smoked herself into lung cancer, and from the home where she was waiting to die, she just asked people to bring her cigarettes. And the instrument of her death, she couldn't shake off because she was like a helpless defense of city that had yielded, 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 no self-control. It had destroyed her life, and she couldn't help herself. And she took that ship all the way down. And sin does that. We have fallen wills that desire things that are destructive for us. And if we can't control them, again, whether that's sloth and laziness, whether that's greed and gluttony, whether that's doing whatever our peers tell us should be done to get public praise and approval, whatever intimidation or temptation may drive us to a behavior, if we can't control our spirits, then we're helpless, we're defenseless, and it's going to take us to places we don't want to go. The flip side of that is we have to be able to make ourselves rule our spirit. So Proverbs 16.32 gives the positive counterpart. He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who captures a city. Now, back in the ancient world, the city-states were the primary form of local rule. So you would have kings of cities because the city that was fortified would rule the surrounding territory. And to be able to conquer a city took a lot of military might. But Solomon, who grew up the son of the great warrior David, said, greater than any military conqueror is the one who can conquer his own spirit. The one who can control his appetites, control his emotions, control his tongue, control his urges, and specifically, control his anger. Because we live in an age of outrage, where everybody is instantly offended 
and where the smallest provocations prompts this tremendous overreaction and will cling to frustrations and there are people shooting each other on the highways or driving each other off the highways or spewing violent venom and vitriol on the internet over nothing because we have no control over our temper. And so someone sent me an illustration that well captured this. Uh, Dwight D. Eisenhower, before he grew up in Abilene, Kansas, was actually born in, anyone know? Denison. He's a Texan. And as a young boy, he was notorious for his temper tantrums. And when he got into a rage, he would lose all control. He would redden, he would brighten, he would fume. And when he was 10 years old, his parents wouldn't let him go out trick-or-treating on Halloween with his older brothers. And he went into a rage that led him outside and he began pummeling an apple tree with his bare fists till his knuckles were bruised and bloody and beaten. And his dad had to come and grab him by the shoulders and shake him into control. And then he went into his room and just wept for an hour out of frustration and rage. Till his mama came in and cleaned up his hands, put some salve on them, put some bandages on them. And then she quoted this verse. He that conquers his own soul is greater than he who takes a city. And Mama Eisenhower left the room. <laughs> and at the age of 76, years later, the future general, the future president, the one who conquered the Nazis first in North Africa and then in Europe, had this to say. I've always looked back on that conversation as one of the most valuable moments in my life. Because you can't be a leader of armies if you can't control your temper. You can't have the presidency and the power on a nuclear button if you can't control your temper. And so as a young lad, his mama told him, you may do mighty things, but the mightiest thing that you can accomplish is to conquer yourself, to control your appetite. And how many people do we know that have thrown away their lives, their careers, their families over uncontrolled anger, over an inability to restrain their tongue, an inability and unwillingness to conquer their spirit? So how do we do this? I'm just going to share a few things that have helped me personally as well as others. First of all, like in any spiritual virtue, scripture, memory, and prayer are essential. So when I was in college and uh, as an early Christian, one of the things I struggled with was sarcastic tongue. And I had a quick wit that could make people laugh. And so I was good at cutting people down. And so I memorized Matthew uh, 12 that, how's it go? I forgot it. <laughs> that every careless man, every careless word a man shall speak, he shall render account for it in the day of judgment. And that frightened me. And so I began to, by God's grace, get a handle on my tongue. Where now the joke is that I don't say negative things about anybody, but the people who know me can tell by my evasive speech when I have a critical comment. So someone might say, how did you like that casserole? And I'll say, I didn't know you could even do that with potatoes. Or so, so, but I, but I, I can't say something negative. I've trained myself into not doing it. And I had a very proud spirit because I was a good student and I was cocky. And then I memorized that God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. And the thought of Almighty God being opposed to me terrified me. And it helped me work on pride. And so whatever area of lack of control that you are suffering from, memorize scripture regarding that. Put God's truth in your mind. And then we pray, God, forgive me. God, change me. God, forgive me. God, help me. In the areas of self-denial, this is why fasting has been one of the standard disciplines of the Christian faith 
not only from Christ onwards, but also from the history of the Jews. As long as God's people had been walking on earth, they have fasted to resist the temptations of this earth. That we get in the habit of saying no to our appetites. And fasting can take different forms. It can be a fast from television, a fast from your electronic devices, a fast from whatever vice is getting you into its bonds and into its clutches. But when we say no to ourselves, we begin to gain control over ourselves. And even in just small matters. Likewise, when we not only deny ourselves, but when we make ourselves do certain disciplines, we are building up our self-discipline to be able to do good things for God. And so when I was in college and I would clean intermittently as male collegiates do, uh, for some reason I didn't like vacuuming and I was always inclined to just kind of give the push the vacuum through the chair versus actually moving the chair, thoroughly getting all the crumbs that are attracting the roaches underneath. And so every time to this day when I vacuum, because my wife doesn't like it, I'm the vacuumer in the house. And 30 years later, Every time I start to come to the kitchen table, I think, you know, I could just shove this in between the chairs. <laughs> and I make myself turn off the vacuum, move all the chairs, vacuum thoroughly, put them back, and it's an act of self-discipline. I'm not going to let myself cut that corner. Now, I began making myself do the least pleasant task first because we naturally feel an aversion to the things that are pleasant to me. And I got to the point where I would tell my body, you're not the boss around here. You don't get to tell me what to do. I'm in charge here. And by God's grace, we begin to build up our self-discipline, our self-control. I heard someone say in college that I've never forgotten it. The secret to success in life is making yourself do what you need to do, when you need to do it, whether or not you feel like it. And I use that mantra to this day. Do I need to do this? Yes. Is now the time to do this? Yes. Do I want to do this? Well, that's irrelevant. If it needs to be done, it needs to be done now, I'm gonna do it. And I'm not gonna to yield to laziness, procrastination, or to all the other excuses that we make. So we begin to build up our self-control that we can apply to various areas of our life. Um, don't tell yourself that you can't help yourself because that's a lie. Oftentimes when we give in to something so long, we've lost so many battles, we just say, well, I'm just helpless against this, whatever it is. But the Bible says, God's truth says, that no temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. And God, with the temptation, will provide the way of escape that you can resist it. It's a lie that you can't help yourself. We just haven't chose to help ourselves yet. And God will help us if we ask him. And what is the final fruit of the Spirit for those of us who give our lives to Christ and the, God, the Spirit of God lives within us? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. God develops that beautiful fruit in us as we walk with him and by his spirit. We don't just have to grit it and gut it out, but we can't give up. So many of y'all have seen the movie To Kill a Mockingbird, and you remember Miss Dubois. Is it Dubois? Who was the cranky lady down the street? Miss Dubai. Thank you, ma'am. And so here was this cranky lady that was irritable, but those of you who have read the book, and not just the cliff notes when it was assigned, you remember why she was so cranky. She lived in chronic pain, and so she began to take morphine, and then she got addicted, and then she knew that she was going to die, but she determined, I'm not gonna die an addict. 
and she was weaning herself off morphine, which is why she was cranky and irritable. But by golly, she was not going to die an addict. <laughs> and she's one of my heroines. May all of us be like that. However many battles you've lost, there's hope because God is almighty and the Holy Spirit is mightier than whatever addiction that you put yourself in. God commands us to be self-controlled. He gives us his spirit to foster self-control. Don't be like a wallless city. Don't be weak-willed. Let us rise up and let that be the battle that we fight. Secondly, <laughs> righteousness. Here are some of the Proverbs on that. And this is just, just a smattering. If you look up righteous, righteously, and right in the Proverbs, those three terms occur more than 180 times. Now, I haven't checked it, but I suspect that's the most common word family in Proverbs, is righteous, righteousness. The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is his delight. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves the one not who just achieves righteousness, but to pursue it, to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. The Lord, when he looked down on the earth in Genesis 6 and saw that there, the, every intent of the heart was only evil continually, and God grieved, and he ultimately destroyed the world with a flood, but there was one man that walked with the Lord and was a righteous man, and he was willing to spare his family and ultimately humans through that one man. You remember Job, when Satan came before him along with the other sons of God, the angelic beings? Have you seen my servant Job? There's no one like him. Fearing the Lord and walking righteously. The Lord loves righteousness, which means obeying his revealed will, doing what is right, obeying God no matter what the world says, saying no to the flesh if God says that's not good or appropriate for us, that we as God's people pursue holiness. We pursue His will, not ours. And one of the implications of this, 28.1, the wicked flee when no one is pursuing, but the righteous are as bold as a lion. The wicked, knowing that they've done wickedness, live in constant fear that they're going to be exposed, that their secret's going to be found out. So there's an anecdote told, uh, and I think it's actually true, that Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of Sherlock Holmes, had a friend who decided to put to the test the old proverb that everyone has a skeleton in their closet. He says, I wonder if that's really true. Does everyone have a dark and dirty secret somewhere buried? And so he wrote to an archdeacon that everybody admired as a model person in that society, and this was the message on the telegram. All is discovered, fly at once. And the archdeacon fled the country. <laughs> now, no proof, no evidence, but all's discovered, and how would we respond? Uh, y'all have heard of extortion? Have y'all heard of the phrase sextortion? So this is a scam that's come up in the last couple of years that people send hundreds or thousands of emails out saying, I have access to your computer files and I see what you've been searching and watching. You must begin giving me this money or I'll reveal everything to your mailing list. And people with no proof, no evidence on that vague threat begin giving extortion money because everybody's afraid of anyone knowing what's on their computers or on their files. 
And the way to avoid that is to be righteous. We never do wrong by doing right. You'll never do wrong by doing the right thing. And sometimes that requires courage and even confrontation. Look at Proverbs 25, 26. Like a trampled spring and a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. The wicked don't just leave the righteous alone, do they? They want to silence us or to corrupt us or to take over the areas and the pockets of righteousness that we've been able to preserve. They want to take that well that's going to give life-giving water to other and pollute it. They want to come to that stream that if it's left pure will feed a village, I mean, will, will provide for a village and irrigate the crops and poison it. And so righteousness requires not only for us in our own individual lives to live righteously. Sometimes we have to confront wickedness. Sometimes we have to rise up and resist evil. Edmund Burke, the conservative political philosopher, said, all that is required for evil to prevail is for the righteous to do nothing. All that is required for evil to prevail is for the righteous to do nothing. And we as Christians have done nothing for a long time. We just assumed this was our country, this was our culture, and we can't be silent anymore because wickedness is being taught in the schools, on the media, from the platforms that our kids are looking up to and that we turn to, and there is wickedness everywhere. And we as Christians have to be brave enough and bold enough and obedient enough to say, that's not right. For you to sterilize and sexually mutilate a child because he's been confused about his gender, that ain't right. And I don't care what the world says, that's not right. And Ending an inconvenient pregnancy with an abortion is murder, and that's not acceptable. And we're going to stand up against that. And there's not 112 different genders. We know that God made them male and female, and we're going to speak out of the sanctity of marriage. And as marriage rates decline, we're going to honor the institution of marriage. And as birth rates decline because people find children inconvenient and expensive for their selfish lifestyles, we're going to continue honor the bearing and the raising of children. And it's time that we're going to have to stand up and said, that ain't right, and I'm not going to be silent anymore. And I am going to vote, and I am going to speak, and I am going to post, and I am going to resist, and I'm not going to be cowed, and I'm not going to be intimidated, because like a polluted well and a trampled spring are the righteous who stand by and do nothing when wickedness prevails. It's time for us to be whom God calls us to be, and to remove the bushel and let the light shine, that men may see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Integrity. So we have some accountants and some mathematicians here. An integer is a whole number, a number that doesn't have any fractional parts or any decimals, any uh, portion of a whole at the end of a decimal. And integrity is a wholeness of character. It is a consistency of character that what we do in public is what we do in private. It's an unwillingness to live a duplicitous double life but rather to say it does not matter if anyone watches or not because God is watching and I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to move the kitchen chairs even if my wife's not in the living room because it's the right thing to do. Now, some of my favorite illustrations that have helped me in this, I haven't been able to prove this. I know we've got some internet researchers. Maybe y'all can prove it. But I am told, I hope it's true, 
that if you were on a helicopter or a plane and go over the Statue of Liberty, the Lady Liberty's hair is actually complete. But if you think about it, when the statue was built at the end of the 19th century, no one was ever going to be able to be that tall. You weren't going to have balloons, you weren't going to have planes. No one would ever know if she was bald behind the crown. But the sculptor did the hair the right way anyway because God saw Lady Liberty's hair. And he was going to do it right even if no one else ever saw it. And there's something right and glorious about that. Um, there was a man who used to be the dean of the College of Business and Finance at North Texas. And he was also an elder of a particular church that at the end of the year they were doing their budget and they were off in their reconciliation by a nickel. So they went through all the accounts again off by a nickel. So he insisted that they stay there again and they were off by a nickel. And so finally the administrator slammed a nickel down on the table and said, here's the nickel, let's go home. And this man said, not on your life, we're staying here until we find God's nickel. <laughs> It wasn't the amount, it was that it was God's nickel. Some saint, some widow gave that, and we're going to track it down because we're accountable for every penny that's given or spent. We're staying till we find God's nickel. And one of the movies, characters that inspires me, uh, there's a movie called A Man for All Seasons about Thomas More, uh, the author of Utopia, who was a staunch Roman Catholic, and when King Henry VIII was requiring a vow, uh, that he was the head of the Church of England, said, no, actually only the Roman bishop is the head of the church. And his family and everyone around him was saying, just say the vow, just say the words, and then cross your fingers. I mean, say the words, come home, be with your family. It doesn't matter if you and your heart know that you don't believe it, then just say the words. And he tells his daughter Meg before he goes to the Tower of London, he's eventually beheaded. He said, when we take a vow, we're taking ourself and pouring it into our hands like water. And when we break that vow, we're opening our fingers and letting ourselves run through. And he said, there are some men who are capable of this, but I'm loath to think your father one of them. And he gave his life because he would not make a vow that he didn't believe. We need to be people of integrity that even if no one else knows that we were given back too much change, we know and we give it back. Even if no one else knows that we were undercharged, we recognized it and we tell the cashier that Christian students don't cheat on their exams and plagiarize on their papers. Christian employees don't call in sick just because they have something they want to do on that day. We don't check in late and check out late or check in late and check out early because we do, our work hard, we do our work heartily as to the Lord rather than to men. Christian construction workers don't cut corners just because once the sheet rocks up, no one will know. God knows, and we live our lives with uncompromising integrity. Now, Honest Abe, Abraham Lincoln, got his nickname when he had lost an election. He became co-owner co of a small county store in New Salem, Illinois. And as he was doing the accounts, if someone gave him too many pennies or if he gave back too little change, he shut down the store and walked to the person and gave back the pennies. And it didn't matter the amount and it didn't matter the mileage. What mattered was I had their money. 
at one time a lady came in, this was back on the scales, and a lady had bought some tea, and when he was recalibrating the scales, he realized they had been miscalibrated, and he had given the lady too few tea leaves for whatever she paid for it. So he shut down the store, measured it up, made up the difference, walked to her house, and gave her the remnant tea leaves because he was not going to give less than he received. When the store went out of business and then his business partner died, there were debts that were significant. And rather than just simply shrugging them off or leaving them to the creditors, he continued to pay those off for years to come all the way until he was in office as a congressman because he would not be a shirker of his debts. We are to be men and women of integrity because as the Proverbs say, God is a shield to those who walk in integrity. A righteous man who walks in integrity, how blessed are his sons after them. That we leave a legacy to our children, both with the name that we bequeath to them and also the example we set for them. And my children have watched me go back to a store and give back money if I've been overcharged or undercharged because that's who we are. That shouldn't be a significant, remarkable thing for a Christian. Better is the poor who walks in his integrity than he who is crooked, though he be rich. Our next virtue is humility. The fear of the Lord is the instruction for wisdom, and before honor comes humility. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. The reward of humility and the fear of the Lord are riches, honor, and life. A man's pride will bring him low, but a humble spirit will obtain honor. So there is a consistent connection in the Bible between fearing the Lord and humility, because if we recognize that God is the creator, we're the creation. He's the redeemer, we're the redeemed. He's the king, we're the subject. He's the master, we're the minions. He's the Lord, we're the disciples. And every breath we take is by his grace. There is nothing we have that we haven't received. It's all grace. It's all gift. And so we of all people should be humble. And now God is the one who will honor us in due time. Because God humbles the proud but exalts the humble. And so we let others make false accusations against us. We let others besmirch us. We let others self-promote. And we will wait on the Lord to vindicate us and to honor us in that day. Christ, who sat at the right hand of God, who was the very God, became a man and he was rejected and he was mocked and he was beaten and he was falsely accused. And God lifted him up to give him the name above every name that at the name of Christ, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's our model. That's our standard. That's the one who will enable us to do that. But there is an especial connection in the book of Proverbs between humility and teachability. Between the willingness to seek out and receive counsel and even more admirably and rare, the, ability, the, the willingness to receive rebuke and reproof. Because the real test of humility is what do we do when others teach us and more significantly, what do we do when others reproach us? It is a rare individual that receives rebuke graciously. But why? I mean, think about it. None of us are all-knowing. So why do we have to be, pretend to be know-it-alls? None of us know everything. Our ignorance is so vast. 
Why are we unwilling to seek and receive counsel and instruction from others? It's ego. It's foolish. But none of us are perfectly righteous. And so if someone does rebuke me and reprove me, our response should be, sister, you don't know the half of it. (laughs) Man, I'm much worse than that. And even if they didn't say it with the right way or with the right heart, there's still something in there that I can glean, something in there that I can learn. And we should be willing to seek and receive instruction. We should be willing to seek and receive rebuke so that we can become more like our Lord who is perfect. We must be reproachable. Finally, wisdom teaches us the virtue of trusting God. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. He who gives attention to the word will find good and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. An arrogant man stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will prosper. The fear of the Lord, the fear of man brings a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord will be exhausted. Now we all trust in someone or something to guide us, to provide for us, to protect us. And in America, we exalt self-reliance. It's the great Emerson F. essay, right? That we're going to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and that great Horatio Alger myth. And the great goal is to be financially and in otherwise autonomous and independent where we don't need nobody and nobody can touch us. But that's foolish because all of us are going to get sick. None of us know everything. None of us are all powerful, all wise, all good. And so we can't trust in ourselves. And really, and I can at least say this for myself, no one has done more harm to me personally than me. I am my own worst enemy. My stubbornness, my foolishness, my pride has cost me more than any external enemy has afflicted on me. Why would I trust myself when I'm so often untrustworthy? I trust what God says, not what I feel. I trust what the scripture says, not what the world tells me. I trust what Christ tells me, not what the world demands of me. Because we can't trust in ourselves, we can't trust in the government, we can't trust that the media is telling us truth, that the marketers have our best intentions in mind, that the entertainment industry is holding up anything like realistic or honorable ideals. We trust God. And that means when the world says do this, but God says don't, we don't do that. When God says do this, but the world says you better not, we listen to God, not men. We go to his word for how to live our marriage, how to pick our spouse, how to raise our kids, how to run our business, how to be an employee, what to do and not do with our bodies and our time and our resources. We trust God. And when unexpected things happen, we trust the Lord to preserve us and to guide us. And when hard things happen, we trust that they are under the Lord's control and we seek how we might be faithful in the midst of them until he teaches us our lesson. Uh, We had a dear sister in our house this morning and she was saying, you know, the Bible says, delight yourself in the Lord and then he'll give give you the desires of your heart. Everybody wants the desires of their heart, but no one wants to delight themselves in the Lord. And our heart, the Bible says, is wicked, is deceitful. And we can't trust ourselves. And so we trust in God to guide us, to provide for us, to protect us, and to lead us safely home. So an author named David Brooks uh, wrote a book last year called The Road to Character. 
Now, David Brooks, if you don't know, is a conservative blogger, writer. He posts on the Washington Times, Post, New York Times, and others. And the impetus of the book, he says in his introduction, is he was driving home from work and listening to a radio show, radio show that was talking about the World War II veterans when victory in Japan, VJ Day, occurred. And they were talking to these soldiers. And what struck him was the tremendous sacrifices they had made. But also, there was no self-exaltation. As they were talking to these heroes, they were just saying, you know what, all I did was my duty. The real heroes were those that aren't coming back. You know, we were there because we just had to do what needed to be done. And they were self-effacing, they were humble, etc. And he was so taken by the account that when he pulled up in his driveway, he stayed until the show was over. And then he went into his house and he turned on the television and there was a football game on. And so he watches the quarterback throw a pass to a receiver for a two-yard gain and he's immediately tackled. And the defensive back who tackled him begins to come into this chest-thumping, self-promoting dance so that all the world could see how great he is. And he said, something has changed in our country and our culture and it ain't right that the real heroes used to be self-effacing and to pursue the honorable virtues of courage and bravery and sacrifice. And now we are in the age of self-promotion. He's gone from what he says used to be the little me to the big me. <laughs> and the little me, just we just did our duty. We just wanted to raise our families right. We wanted to be faithful husbands, good employers, good citizens. And that was enough. And we honored that. It exalted that. And now we've reached an age of selfishness and self-centeredness and self-promotion and self-satisfaction and self and self and self and self. And we're miserable. Divorce rates are skyrocketing. Addictions are skyrocketing. Suicides are skyrocketing. You being the Lord of your life is not the secret to the good life you want. It is listening to the Lord and pursuing, acquiring, and protecting and passing on the virtues that he says are the foundation for a life well lived, a good life in the eyes of the Lord that he will honor and respect someday. By God's grace, may he give us self-control. May he make us righteous. May he preserve our integrity. May he give us the bravery to withstand the evils yet to do so humbly. And might we trust in the Lord with our lives, with our families, with our church, with our country. Remember Joshua's great words at the end of his life when he called the people together, the Lord was about to take him home. You choose today whom you will serve. But as for me, in my house, we're serving the Lord. Live wisely, pursue wisdom's virtues. And when we fail, as we will, and when we falter, as we do, remember that these virtues, these righteous deeds, these good attributes aren't what make us right in God's eyes. God is the only perfect righteous one. And in his love, he sent his son to be the only perfectly righteous, perfectly humble, perfect integrity, perfect self-control, perfect trust was Jesus Christ so that he could be the sinless substitute to pay the penalty for all of our failures and so that he could earn the righteousness that he's willing to reckon to our account if we put our trust in him. And so even while we aspire to be godly and Christ-like, which the Bible tells us again and again to do, that's not the good news 
of the gospel. The good news is, even though we haven't, aren't, and won't do this, God did it all for us in Jesus Christ. And wherever you're at, however fall you fall short, He will forgive you now if you ask Him. He will put His Holy Spirit within you today, and then He will produce His beautiful fruit of righteousness and self-control in you as you let Him. This is the truth, but that's not the whole truth. The rest of the truth is the good news of Jesus Christ. Believe in Him, and let's trust in Him, and let's walk with Him by God's grace to be wise and virtuous until He returns for us. Would you pray with me? Father, <laughs> we saw that the word proverb comes from the word comparison because we're intended to hold up the true standard of Scripture and then to look at our lives alongside it. And when we do, uh, there is a tremendous gap. And so we readily confess and acknowledge that we have not obeyed these commands. We don't have these virtues. We have all compromised and fallen short of the glory of God. And that is why we are so grateful for your sending of your Son to die for our sins and to live righteously for us, that as our substitute and as our representative, He might be our Savior. If there is anyone here today that does not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, would you open the eyes of their hearts to respond to that good news right now? And for those of us who have, would you give us the commitment to follow Jesus as our Lord? And by His grace, by the power of your Spirit, would you conform us to the image of Christ and make us virtuous, that we might please you and that we might represent and serve you well in our day. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. For those who are helping with communion, if you would please come forward. Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper so that we might remember uh, the price of our salvation, the greatness of our Lord, the reality of His presence among us, and the hope of His return. If you're a guest here today, but you know Jesus Christ is your Lord, you're part of the family, and we invite you to join us in the family meal. If you have not yet confessed your sins and given your life to Christ, we ask that you just simply let the elements pass, and perhaps today would be the day of your salvation, or at least a seed planted that will soon emerge into new life. Would you pray with me, then we'll distribute, and then we'll partake together. Father, we thank you again for the greatness of your love, that you so love this wicked, vicious world, that you sent your one and only Son, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. Thank you for that good news. Thank you for that grace. Thank you for the, honor of, or the opportunity to honor our Lord by celebrating a supper together as his children and family. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and breaking it said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, taking the cup, he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, which was spilt for you. Do this as often as you will in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat the bread and take the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came. We thank you that you are coming back. May we be found faithful when you come. We ask this in your name. Amen. My children, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Do not let kindness and truth leave you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart so you will find favor and good repute in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your body and refreshment to your bones. God bless. Have a beautiful Sabbath.